Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Holy Talk. Email holytalkpodcast at gmail.com for more information. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Daniel Ortiz. Um, I usually have a co-host with me, but today we are doing things a little bit different. Uh, I hope that you're staying safe. I hope that uh, you are drawing closer to the Lord. Um, This will be on this will be on two podcasts. So for those who don't know that we have two podcasts, we have one called the Wave Ministries and we have another one called Holy Talk Podcast, which is our podcast with the Orthodox Rabbi that we do weekly. Um, so you can look at, uh, you can find this interview that I'm so excited about, um, both of those uh, podcasts. So today it's going to be an interview um, and next week we'll add both our co-hosts, which uh, for Holy Talk Podcast is Rabbi Tuli and the other one is Michael Red. Uh, but today I'm, I'm delighted, I am honored to have the patriarch of the Ortiz family. And I want to introduce to both podcasts because I know that you guys have been praying uh, for Angel Ortiz Jr., which is the eldest, uh, which again, I said he's the patriarch. He's the one that raised all our brothers and sisters uh, and all eight of us. So Angel, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, bud? I'm doing well. Thank you, Reverend Ortiz. Thanks for having me on today. It, it's our honor. Um, and by the way, so that you know, the listener can know, we are going to be talking about uh, what it is to survive COVID-19, um, the experience of going through COVID-19, and then, you know, the thoughts of someone as, uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, the thought patterns that it takes to survive such a horrible disease that we have on earth. So, Angel, I'm going to unleash you. I'm going to um, be asking different questions and different things as, as you continue to, but, uh, you know, tell the audience where it started. You know what I mean? If you want to tell a little bit about yourself, that's fine so that they can get to know you. Um, this is an open forum. So whatever you feel best to start this, um, for those who don't know, Angel Ortiz had COVID-19. We still don't know if he's, if he's fully, he's recovered, but we don't know. We haven't, he hasn't got retested, but he'll get into those details. So go ahead, Angel. Yeah, so look, I think it's, it's, let's start with just, I'm an average American citizen, right? I'm, a, I'm an attorney, um, works for a media company. Um, I uh, live in New Jersey with uh, my wife and, and uh, two young adult children. Um, and, you know, in terms of health-wise, you know, um, you know I'm, uh, I'm a little on the heavy side, but I was, you know, still working out and, uh, generally describe myself as being in very and pretty good health. Uh, and so I'm as about as average Joe as you can get, right? So didn't have a lot of underlying uh, conditions that sometimes um, we've been hearing about in the news that causes more difficult, uh, you know, COVID-19 situations, right? And, and in, in terms of just, again, basic information, right? COVID-19 is the disease that we're going to be talking about today that affected me for, for quite some time. It's caused by a virus known as SARS-CoV-2, which is a, 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 a coronavirus out of the SARS family and is known as a novel coronavirus because we hadn't seen it before until 2019. That's what the 19 refers to. And, uh, you know, again, basics. I started to exhibit symptoms in March of this year. Started around a Thursday or Friday. The first set of symptoms I had that I knew that something was wrong was a 
was kind of the classic uh, sore throat that people hear about in the news that was quickly followed by some fairly, um, you know, difficult headaches, not normal, I would say. For those of you who probably suffer some migraines, they probably were more on the migraine end, which was odd for me. So I knew something was wrong because I'd never had a migraine before and I knew this wasn't a migraine. And then that quickly morphed into I had some of the terrible chills and uh, body aches and kind of like flu, heavy flu-like symptoms, you know. And I remember acutely because that was about Thursday night into a Friday morning that those symptoms started. And then things progressed from there. Um, I quickly moved into the kind of the gastro uh, issues that they say come with this virus. Um, And then uh, kind of moved into high fever. And when we were talking about high fever with me, it wasn't 100, it wasn't 101 degrees, it was 103 and 104. Um, and so, you know, Friday comes and goes, Saturdays arrives and, you know, uh, and I'm still suffering from high fever. Um, and I probably suffered from high fevers for the next few days because it wasn't, um, probably to the following Tuesday. So again, starting on a Thursday night and now I'm on the next Tuesday, still suffering from what I would call these, you know, a very bad flu, um, but on that Tuesday, things turned a little bit, and um, my wife uh, started to notice that I was having some difficulty breathing. And my breathing was becoming more and more labored as the Tuesday rolled on. Um, and it became such, such a, an issue that, that really that Tuesday night I couldn't sleep. I just didn't have enough oxygen to really maintain uh, a healthy kind of sleeping cycle. So we knew Wednesday, hey, I'm a, I'm a little bit in trouble. I think I have to maybe perhaps go seek some medical attention. And so Wednesday, I, I spent the better part of Wednesday attempting with, it seemed, about you know, 300 other people to get into the ER of my um, local hospital. Um, and I want to kind of take a moment here and, and talk a little bit about, and I'll continue the journey on, on kind of day-by-day uh, day blow, I do want to talk about our nurses and doctors because I think, um, I, think, I think what is great about America is we have sort of woken up to the heroic efforts of people that really embody um, as an occupation um, kind of that servant leadership or that service uh, that, you know, the Bible talks about that great management gurus talk about, um, right? Like Simon Sinek and others out there to talk about giving of self and that's your core of what you do. It doesn't get any better in in terms of humanity uh, than it does with nurses and doctors. And, you know, for for me, I'll be honest, um, Danny, I, I, you know, I sort of knew that they were there yeah, I, you know, I've been to the hospital, something happens, a kid has to go to the hospitals, they're there. They're kind of um, part of the backdrop, I'll say, right, um, of uh, what a hospital. So you, you almost, when you think about going to the hospital, no one says, I'm going to be looked at by a doctor. That's like going to your doctor's office. But if you go to the hospital, you don't say, I want to be seen by a physician at a hospital. You say, I went to a hospital, which kind of tells you that even in our own lexicon in the United States, 
we kind of not purposefully, but just um, I would say culturally diminished uh, certainly nurses and, and lab technicians and, and the respiratory therapists and, and then even doctors because they're, they're sort of part of what happened when you went to this thing called a hospital. Obviously, COVID-19 has, I think, put them in the forefront. You're talking about people who leave their families and willingly take on risks to themselves to simply do their job, which is to care in 99% of the time for a stranger. So think about that for a moment, that this individual is putting themselves in harm's way. And for me, in my experience, I was, uh, I'm not going to go day by day, but I was part of an eight-day hospital stay, which sounds like terrible, but believe it or not, it's actually in the middle of the, when you look at um, kind of the whole uh, uh, sort of range of, of, of light, you know, that you got some headaches and that was it, or you were asymptomatic, to being intubated for a month. That was sort of towards the lighter end, eight days. But eight days mm-hmm. is eight days. You know, uh, you know, so it's a it was long time, a long time yeah. and you're staring at wall. Well, for eight days, the only people that could be there for me, because you know, with COVID nineteen, that's rightly so. You know, your family can't come see you because you're you're obviously infectious or contagious, and you know, you don't want to harm them. Those are your only family. You know, the doctors that come in. Uh, the nurses that come in, the the technicians that come in and take your blood, the physical, the the respiratory therapists that come in and measure your breathing and uh, make sure you're sort of um, not passed out or need to be intubated. And and if you think about an army over eight days, you know, for me it was, I saw five doctors over eight days because they were running in and out, you know. And when you, I was hospitalized. Um, on that Thursday. So back to my timeline, Tuesday, I, I, I say, I have to go in, um, I, I, you know, something's wrong. Wednesday morning, I wake up, I said, let, let me go to the ER. I try to get into the ER. There's not enough beds. I leave after about a 14 hour wait. I come back Wednesday night, uh, April 1st into uh, Thursday morning, April 2nd. And now I'm in real trouble. And I just don't, I just don't realize, but my wife realizes it. Um, there's a, a metric called uh, your uh, oxygen level, right? So the oxygenization of your blood, um, a human being has to have a certain percentage of it. If not, if you drop below and it's measured out of a hundred, if you start to drop below your body's, your muscles, your organs, your brain do not have enough oxygen to live. And your body starts to shut down. So that's the big metric. That's the big dangerous thing with not getting enough oxygen in your lungs. You're not getting enough oxygen to your body. So, and th- and that's why the disease is different than many other diseases because of the oxygen level. Right. So it doesn't act like a normal, uh, purchase say flu because what attacks your oxygen level when the flu symptoms or flu like symptoms or the disease of a fluid, it attacks you a lot different than this. And I'll ask the audience, uh, hold your breath for 30 seconds. Yeah. And if you think about taking a breath after 30 seconds for 10 seconds and holding your breath another 30 seconds, and then doing that as a pattern, that is what is restricted breathing. 
So Angel, I want to pause for a second because I want to go back to the nurses. I'm going to highlight something there. And then I'm going to back up a little bit before you mm -hmm. continue the story because I'm going to pack up of, of the protection that you took before you got it. And so I look at this uh, like a book. So if you read, you ever read a good book, I love good books. You mentioned Simon Sinek. Uh, he has a book called Leaders Eat Last, right? So if you read that book, it's amazing. Um, and you go around and highlighting these different uh, objects of this book, but the book is about leadership. I want you to look at, I want our audience to look at COVID-19. And Angel, I don't know if you've seen it this way. I want it to look at, how about if the book is about the story of nurses and doctors and first responders and those who um, are working in the Lowe's, uh, are working in the Kroger's, right? And, and it's a good book about human nature and, uh, and, and kindness that the human nature already has within itself. And within that good book about these humankind people and the self-sacrificing life that they live, there's a highlighted portion called the disease of COVID-19. And, and I, though the disease is, is a terrible thing, I, I, I want to tend to a lot of times, Angel, just put the hat on these incredible people. And the reason that, that's so dear and uh, endearing to my heart is because Deb has been working in the hospital for 20 years. Uh, my oldest daughter, Michaela, is going to school to be a nurse. So, you know, I see the sacrifice from my home that folks make to go into this thing. So I, I want folks not to just look at the disease itself as the main character in the story, though there's a lot of highlight in it. I want it to just be a highlight of a great story of a human kindness and mankind coming up to the plate and shown itself as great as we are, because I think we forget that a lot of times that we have great people. You know, there's wars and there's, you know, different political parties. And, and then I think within all of that, you forget that in times of trouble, mankind is just human and it's kind and it's loving and it's loving everyone. And so that's a, just a different way of looking. at No, it. You know absolutely. I mean? And taking that trend in terms of looking at it as a story arc, right? It, it really, COVID-19 is the villain. But the story isn't always about the villain. The story, the villain exists to really reflect the journey that the protagonist goes through. And in this case, the protagonist is humanity, right? For, for the exactly first right. time, humanity is challenged. And, and if you think about it, and I'm going to connect it back to why I think nurses and doctors are so, are so much the very best of us, right? It, 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 you know, the... The, the terrible thing about this disease is, and not just in terms of the lies it's taken, in terms of the toll it takes on people who get it, and, and then, of course, having affected society, it's that it has caused human beings to stop doing what it is that humanity has done for a better part of since creation. And that is what makes us different than all other creatures on this planet uniquely, is that we need and crave other humans. We actually need yes. to be with other humans. We need close proximity. We need touch. We need uh, closeness. And this disease has temporarily robbed us of that peace. And so when you're talking about being as I did, so I ended up leaving the ER on Wednesday, April 1st, getting in real trouble uh, to such a degree on Thursday, April 2nd, that I had to have an ambulance come take me to the hospital because I was in real serious trouble. 
I kind of knew I was in trouble. I didn't really know until much later how much trouble I was and how close, you know, you are to your body shutting down. And then, of course, you go into cardiac arrest because uh, your body starts shutting systems down like if you were shutting a plant down and all that's left is the heart and the brain. And that's when you're obviously in serious trouble. But then I get hospitalized. And in the hospital, as when you're in COVID-19 and you're in isolation, they put you in a room, uh, uh, what's called a clean room, uh, with what is known as negative pressure. That is, they suck all of the air out of that room and then recycle it and put it back in. And so you're getting your own air because they're afraid that even your air. So think about that, right? Uh, I, I, I'm a people wow. person. I love That's people. Crazy. And so the idea of being isolated in a room designed to keep me with myself, um, breathing my own air, and it sounds like a jet engine, so it's, it's sort of an assault on the senses. But through all of this craziness that's occurring the first couple of days, and, and talk a little bit more later about uh, you know the disease itself, the, I call it the beast, and, and grappling with the beast because it really is a beast. Um, the you know nurses and doctors are human beings, so I, I, I encountered doctors. You know, I, I had a doctor who was afraid to even come into my room. Um, she was so afraid she would actually call me by phone and see me through the very little pane window of my front door to my room. And I understood it. I, I didn't feel mad or, or not attended. I, I immediately understood the fear. But then throughout all this, there was a nurse that came in and she held my hand. And think about that for a moment. Right? She held my hand. For me, that was the first human touch I had had, this is a few days in, she knew somehow that I was, and I'm a, I'm okay kind of guy. You okay? I'm okay. I'm okay. And something in her told her to hold my hand. And I didn't say anything and she didn't say anything. She just held my hand for a moment. And I think what she knew that I needed was human touch because she knew that I had already being in the hospital three or four days, understood what the, what the gig was. They would come in, and I guess I was so infectious, which really struck me, is that when nephews entered my room, and uh, they came in with all double layers and the face mask and the face guard and the, you know, and the mask underneath and the shield. It was, you know, uh, if you ever see the movie Outbreak, you know, almost like, you know, the, kind of the scientists in that movie. And then when they leave the room, they would strip everything off before they left the room because they didn't want to, they didn't want the clothes that then was infected, the outer layers to be taken outside. So this was, this was the drill. And so you kind of get used to like, wow, I'm super contagious and nobody wants to be around me. So I come back to that, the humanity of that nurse, because somehow something in her being the nature of a caregiver, she knew that I needed that at that moment. She knew that I needed that. There, there, there's something to be said about the power of touch. And, and, and for those that go look it up, I mean, if a baby is born and, and when you, when you, when you were saying that angel, when she touched you, it just takes you up to that childlike faith of that little kid. Because when a baby's born, a baby needs the touch of a person. We know how much of a parent, what a parent does, what a woman does when a mother takes her baby and holds her within her breast. Uh, that human connection keeps that baby alive. If you were to separate a baby from its any human touch, it right. can't survive. 
right? Because it needs to be developed through human touch. So the power of touch, and it takes me back to the story of uh, uh, Luke 15, for those who, who understand that story of the prodigal son. When the son left, the first thing the father did, he didn't ask the question. He didn't say a statement to him. The word says that he ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him, right? So, so, so think about that. I, I, I don't care why you left. I don't care why we've been apart for so long. I don't care what you did with the money I gave you. That None of that matters. What matters is can we touch each other? Because with me touching you and embracing you lets you know all is well, right? There's something in the power of a human hug, right? Um, when a kid is hurting, when a kid falls, you and I have children, when our kids... You know that you know we couldn't do much with the with the with the booboo that they had, but just holding them changed the perspective of everything. They felt safe, protected, so much with the power of a touch um, that you're talking about right there, because it really right. is life, right? And, and it's reassuring, and it's um, you know in this disease and the isolation that has to come with treating the disease you you do and you don't understand really because half of it half the time you're kind of out but you have a a visceral need for human touch right um you know uh, my days became very much looking forward to when they delivered my meals three times a day and even as weird as this sound there were uh, plenty of times when um, routinely they would administer. Um, so I was lucky to be going to a hospital called Overlook Hospital. It's in New Jersey. It's a tremendous institution, um, has all the modern conveniences. And I really, I was lucky. And I want to talk a little bit about that because, you know, not everyone's lucky to have one of the greatest hospitals in the world 20 minutes from their house. And oftentimes, you know, that has been the sad part about the treats and uh, the treatment and and kind of the recovery issues that go along with this disease. It has been uneven because not all populations, not all Americans have access to uh, what I'm unfortunate in my family, fortunate to have access, uh, which is to quality health care. Um, and, and that obviously I, I realized being there as, as trapped as I was, as isolated as I was, that at the end of the day, I had all the modern conveniences um, that one can think about in a most modern hospital, except for the TV. For some reason, no matter how modern it, a, a hospital can get, they seem to still have TVs from the 1970s <laughs> and it's some sort of torture device. But anyway, um, and so, so in terms of, you know, I was there at this That's hospital and, 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 and they, would, um, they gave me the treatment that you all have heard about. Uh, they gave me something called Paquinol, which, which is a part of that family of anti-malarial drugs, and they packaged that up with another drug and a, uh, and a Z-Pack. And so that was the heavy treatment. And then they, they threw in some steroids. So they would, they would give me, uh, uh, every day was, uh, you know, people would come in to give me medicine, and people would come in to draw my blood. Now, think about this. Think about you're asleep, sound asleep, and someone wakes you. Um, gently, but still wakes you. So you're, you're kind of half in and half out, and the purpose of that is for a very invasive procedure, which is to draw blood. Now, this is not your normal uh, uh, blood draw, right, where you take one little vial and that's it. It's over in 30 seconds. This is a multiple vial blood draw every morning at between 4.30 and 5 a.m. Every single day I was hospital. And, 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 and I talk about that even during that invasive process. One of the technicians, she... And I, I guess it was I was particularly out of it. 
said, it's going to be okay, baby. Because <laughs> you know? I, And I'm thinking to myself, wow. what must my face have looked like? Or did I jump and get startled? Because she was just trying to reassure me as she was taking a blood draw that was, you know, after a while, it's, it's hurts, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, it's obviously you're, you're out of it. So you feel completely discombobulated, but even in that again, and she wasn't a nurse, she was a technician. She took time out to feel that as part of her job, she needed to say, it's going to be okay. Like, you know what I mean? I know I'm, in other words, I'm sorry, I'm doing this to you, but you're going to be okay when I'm done. Um, so again, just focusing on doctors and nurses, I, I do call them the, the hand of the divine on the, on this planet, because it really, you know, it took, it took, you know, uh, uh, probably between 20 and 30 people all told between the nurses and the technicians, you know, and the doctors to help me get better, to, to take me from the brink and get me out and send me home. That's a tremendous amount of people to deal with one person. And so, you know, it wasn't, if it hadn't been for them, and what they did, and look, they're human. I'll tell another story that one of the technicians, when I was, when it was clear I was a little bit better, um, confided in me. Um, so this was six or seven days in that she was, that she was afraid, that she had a little eight-year-old boy at home, and she was afraid that she would bring the disease back home, but that she was, and that she didn't want to come to work that day. Um, because she was afraid, but that she was happy that she did because she saw that what she did mattered because I was getting better. And that, I have to tell you, I was, I didn't cry the entire time, except for when she left at my room, because that really struck me of how they're human, just like us. They're afraid. They're not superhuman. You know, that was that to me yeah. is what makes them more than heroic. And, and uh, right. The, the people like your wife, my sister-in-law, Debbie. Right. The, the idea that they go in every day knowing what the risks are and they do it anyway. And they do it for other people that are not their loved ones. That's a powerful statement. And if it hadn't been for them, we would be way worse off than we are, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how we're grappling with the disease as a nation. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about nurses and doctors. I, I want to go, I want to go um, first in the beginning, and I'm, I want to take you back to that uh, day before it got really serious for you, because that's where you left off the story. But I want to go back just a little bit so that you can tell those who are listening, you use all precautionary uh, guidelines, even to right. the point where people made fun of you, and and then you also wrote guidelines for your that's for right. your place of employment. So I want you to talk a little bit about that because right. you did everything that they would tell us to that's do. Right. And that's still right. Got so it. I, you know, so so as much as health wise, I'm sort of your average Joe in terms of the job and connections to dealing with the pandemic and COVID nineteen. I'm not right. I was. I'm an executive in a media company. As part of being the executives, I had the privilege of being appointed to our governing committee that is dealing with uh, the company's response uh, in terms of keeping its employees safe, shutting places down, you know, uh, uh, determining how many uh, times we have to clean our offices and what are the safety measures we have to take. Uh, that we have a task force. Uh, 
And I was part of that task force. And so all the things we did as a task force, uh, right, I try to practice, right? Immediately we sent people home. We did, uh, so we did the most extreme of social distances. We shut down our offices to, because we felt that people were in danger. So we, we, we had people working from home. Um, and, and then we were talking constantly every day about teaching our employees about proper procedures, even in their own homes, you know, wearing gloves, masks. Um, there was not a moment that I, that I, that I was uh, left my home that I did not have gloves and extra gloves in my car. I had a mask on at all times. Um, I brought Lysol wipes with me, uh, uh, Clorox wipes and, and, a, and a Lysol spray, <laughs> which was in my briefcase. Um, and when I use surfaces, so for example, I did visit um, my TV facilities uh, from time to time, not often. Once we had a stay-at-home order, I would visit about once a week. There was some uh, important legal mail. I'm part of the law department, so I, I had to make sure you know we got subpoenas and things like that, uh, or orders from courts. We we need to make sure that we attended to them. Um, even when I went and there was nobody there, so a facility built for you know 2,500 people uh, has you know maybe. 10 or 20 in it. Um, so extreme social distancing, right? Wow. Even where I sat down, I would wipe down the surfaces. So I, 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 so they did make fun of me. My security guard, they knew that I had a huge conference table in our executive boardroom in our facility where we have a, a couple of television stations and a couple of radio stations. And I was the only person there. I was the only executive there. I wiped down the entire desk. I wiped down the chair that I was in. I sprayed it. Um, before and after I was there, <laughs> I, I took a, I took a, a window. So I was like in the extreme, right? Like I, I don't know that, you know, it's, it probably appeared weird to many people. I was really like trying to be super careful and as super careful as I was, I still got it, which, you know, and now it, it's not That's to mention, you know, I want people to understand. We need to continue those safety measures, right? You need to continue. I mean, to, to this day and, and I uh, and I, I actually did get recently on Monday news that I am now uh, uh, positive. I mean, negative for COVID, uh, and I'm waiting uh, the results of an antibody test. But even now that I know that I'm negative for COVID, I probably have antibodies. I still wear a mask and I still wear gloves when I leave my house, because that is just the responsible thing for other humans, right? Maybe someone sneezes on me and it's not going to affect me because I already had it, but maybe I'll carry it to somebody else. So it's those things. But I'm, it goes to show you the insidiousness of this disease. I was about as careful as one can be without putting, being in a bubble on a spaceship, and I got it, which is just sort of like how crazy um, you know, viruses are. And, and a, a reminder that as powerful as we human think we are, I think – I think, I think God and, and the nature that he created from time to time teaches us that, you know, we're part of a greater ec ecosystem. And parts of that ecosystem um, may not be as big as us, may not be as smart as us, but they can certainly take us out. So that's um, insane. Yeah. But yeah, so I was very careful and yet I got it, which is sort of, you know, and, and part of me had that disbelief in the first couple of days. Like, this is not happening. Right? This is not happening to me, not me, right? Uh, like this is, no, this is not happening, right? Um, and it wasn't to like, you know, third or fourth day dealing with 104 degree, 103 degree weather, I mean, um, temperatures uh, and, and not being able to keep it down that I knew, you know, something was up. Um, 
so so yeah so so you know again please be careful please continue to be careful and you know um a lot of people blame themselves you know i think um i did that a little bit for like half a second uh, i think while i was entering the hospital beginning, particularly when i was in the ambulance i was really mad at myself but i but i got over that because it wasn't my fault this is it wasn't you know something happened you know i kind of have an idea what it was and but still like you can't blame anybody for giving you COVID-19 or yourself for getting it. That's, yeah, that's, we're yeah, yeah. human. And, and I think that's part of like a lot of the mental health challenges that are out there, a lot of the depression that's out there. It's like, you know, I put myself in this position or my, you know, why did I put myself in a vulnerable position? And I just think, I think we all have to give ourselves a break. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the disease is a terrible thing. We actually live with a virus all the time that we get all the time called rhinovirus, which is the most successful virus in the world. Um, you know, we, it's the common cold. We get it all the time. Nobody blames anybody for it. You know, we get over it. The thing is, it's not a killer, right? Um, COVID, obviously, it is and, and, and it's serious. But just, you know, um, give yourself a break, but do continue, you know, I think all the appropriate, um, you know, public health official uh, advised um, you know, uh, measures. Um, so, so there I am, I, I'm admitted on Thursday, April 2nd. So take us to that, to that yeah. first encounter with the beast. And, and, yeah. and as you mentioned mental illness, talk to us about the mental, um, strain that it took on you and the mental challenge and also the spiritual challenge. Yeah. There was some spiritual things that happened. So, uh, I think yeah. that'd be interesting to share. So, so, you know, the first couple of days I was sort of very hazy in and out of it. I mean, they, I mean, I was vaguely aware that I was moved from into a, an isolated hospital room and then quickly for whatever, you know, um, I guess because people understood I was in trouble and a couple hours after that, I was moved into the ICU. Um, so I made it into the ICU fairly quickly, I think, uh, within a couple hours of and that is the hallmark of this disease is it obviously clearly affects breathing, which obviously affects uh, how you your sleep cycle, how you get to sleep, how the body rests. And that's one of the things that it does is it taxes your immune system, right? Because you're not getting enough rest, you're not getting enough oxygen. And those two things start to um, take effects. And one of the effects that it, it does is it starts to affect your mind. That combined with obviously some anti-malarial drugs that do have a side effect of being hallucinogenics, right? So, um, you know, I was sort of in and out of consciousness the first couple of days that I was in there um, because I don't, I remember going into the hospital and then my first fully awake day um, was probably that Saturday morning to Saturday afternoon. Um, now, people uh, that I know and love, my wife and others, my family, um, I know I, I, they supposedly had conversations with them. I texted people. I emailed. I was doing work, apparently. <laughs> I was doing legal work. Um, wow. And, uh, and so my subconscious sort of took over, but I, I was sort of losing touch with time. But what I acutely became aware of on that Saturday is that was sort of I woke, I awoke to this really not being in great shape. Like I really, I had, I had a deep awareness that I was in deep mortal danger that, you know, my, 
labs were not good. Um, people had very great faces around me. My breathing was horrific. Um, and, you know, sort of, I, I, I was aware I was in trouble. One of the things that occurred, and I quickly be, sort of got hip to, was it was really difficult to get to sleep at night. And, and part of it was is the worst symptoms, the worst breathing, uh, you know, just, and when I'm talking about just, I tell people, imagine going to sleep at the bottom of a shallow pool every night for eight hours, only being able to breathe out of a straw. Mm. Right. So you're not, you do not have a capacity to bring in air through your nose. You don't have a capacity to bring full air gulps and fresh air, like what you do now uh, when you're not sick into down your throat. And so you get these bat, you know, these batches of hyperventilating. So it's just, it's a horrific cycle where you start, you know, um, getting super anxious and then you go on to, you start hyperventilating and this, you know, then you have to kind of come off that because everything shoots up, your blood pressure shoots up, your heart rate. And it's this horrible cycle. That is what I entered over the next two or three days. And I called the disease a beast because I had this sort of feeling that during the day I was in bad shape, but I was significantly better than at night. At night, every night, it felt like, you know, any one of those sort of dystopian horror movies where bad stuff, you know, happens at night, <laughs> the sun goes down and you know, as a, as a, as a viewer, as a movie viewer that, you know, the monster's coming or Dracula's coming or the aliens are coming. Wow. Right. And so you have yeah. this buildup in your mind. Okay. It's coming. Uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? Right. And then it's, and then the struggle is to get to sleep. And so this terrible process of really seven, eight, nine, ten hours once the sun went down of trying to get to sleep and trying to deal with what was physically occurring, which is not being able to breathe, not being able to lie down, not to be able to, you know, it just nothing worked. And I was still experiencing fever. And so I was uh, dehydrated. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, um, physically uh, painful, you know, uh, you have stuff hooked up to you. My body was experiencing great amounts of pain. Um, the chills were still there. Body aches were still there. And all of that was intense at night. Just, just this weird thing where it was very intense at night. So that's why I kind of called it a beast. It came out at night and it really messed you up. It really kind of, I, I, I describe it to many people that, that I felt that every night it took chunks of me. You know, uh, I call it a beast because it just physically beat you down. And then there were moments where, you, you know, you, I transitioned, I think, from a spiritual and a mental phase of, of you, you get fatigued at the physical pain. You get fatigued at the, you know, that you're experiencing hallucinations, that you're having um, kind of deep difficulty in terms of feeling um, mentally secure and you enter this depressive state, you, you know, I entered spiritually into a sort of a surrender state because you start off saying, you know, all the things that you think you're going to say when you think you're about to die, you know, God, please don't let me die. I know, you know, if I get out of here, I'll, you know, I'll tithe more. I'll be nicer. I'll be, you know, I won't, you know, I won't play as many video games, whatever it is that you talk about, <laughs> right. With God to, you know, when you are fearful, 
but then you kind of you you stay long enough in the grip of this disease and this terrible alternating phase of so during the day just I just couldn't breathe that was good I just just couldn't breathe but at night it was the fever it was the hallucinations and not breathing and the pain and the suffering and the agony right and so that wore you that wears any human being down it wore me down pretty quickly. And so there was a moment of capitulation where I was like, ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I was sort of, I stopped asking, I think, for, hey, give me a pass, big guy. Uh, let me get, you know, let me get this wrong. Give me another chance. You stop having that conversation and you just exist. You just exist. And, and that, I, I, I want to pause right there because I love that vulnerability because I think a lot of people are, find themselves in that state sometimes um, where we prayed all the prayers that we can pray. Uh, we think, you know, you know, that sometimes he's a jukebox and I could just, you know, put a chord and get whatever song I want. And there's just times, there's challenging moments in our lives that, that not even a prayer that you utter is even good enough. You know what I mean? Uh, and that takes me that to Paul in Ephesians 6 where he says, have an all to stand. Have, after you prayed all you pray, all you have is to stand. Like, like whatever it is, like whatever God, I, I I can't control you. You're God. You're bigger. And, and, and it's uh it's a fight night moment at that. I th I think at that moment because I've gone through something similar when I was in the hospital where, where you really lose the fact that you're not a God and you're not as in control as you think you are. And it's like, all right, if you want to, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. If I'm not, I'm gonna not. I'm gonna just. I'm going to stop right now. Right. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people, it's okay to feel that way, right? I think we, religion teaches us not to question God and not to, I always say, you know, a relationship is a true relationship with Jesus and having a relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is a relationship. Sometimes you don't understand. Sometimes you question and sometimes there's nothing to be said, but I'm like, listen, I'm just going to wait on you because I don't know what you want to say. And I think we have to be able to give ourselves permission to have a relationship enough with God to there's moments in our lives that he brings us to that not even an utter prayer can help right. us. It's just like, it is what it is. Right. You get to a level. And I want to be clear with people. It, you're not capitulating. You're accepting. You get to a level of acceptance yeah. where, um, because I was still fighting, right? I'm still a human being. I'm a fighter. I'm a guy from the South Bronx. I'm a football player, you know, and, you know, and, and again, it's, it's like, you know, that, still was Emmy, but the idea of trying to get out of class, <laughs> you know, or get out of jail, so to speak, or, or give me a hall pass, that stopped. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah, like, yeah. okay, so I'm meant to go through this. I don't know how long this is going to be. I don't know where this is going to end, but this is, this is what it's meant for me. So I might as well just deal with it. Like, you know, um, because uh, I also just, you know, thought that, at, at, at some point, in a weird way, it's not right for me to ask God to save me, or as opposed to somebody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know, you just stop and you kind of accept the situation you're in, and then you kind of just be like, okay. And it's a roller coaster, right? You know, you're coming to, and every day, so you come to the top. You know what's coming. You know the terror, right? The fear, the everything of going down. But you also know that, hey, like the, there could be an a, a upside to it. So you kind of get into the groove of grappling with the beast. And it became, you know, a three or four day, you know, if you look at my eight day, nine day thing, it's, it's sort of a third, a third, a third. 
it was the third at the beginning where I was sort of out of it and stuff was happening. I wasn't quite aware uh, of what was going on, but I was in really bad shape. And the third where I, I got realization of enough to say, oh boy, I'm in real, I'm in real trouble here. <laughs> and, and then saying, okay, this is what I have to do. And it's in those, the, the, the three rounds or the four rounds that I went with this beast is understanding that, you know, the first couple of rounds, I was just exhausted. I was just looking to survive. And, you know, every once in a while in these journeys that God puts out there, and then they're, they're journeys, you know, some may call them nightmares, some may call them, but they're journeys, right? And, and in an objective yeah. way, if you strip everything, it's a journey. You start out, you go somewhere where you've never been before, and you come and return. And so when you're out there, and I'm out there wrestling this thing, I started to also realize that I was sort of, in a way, wrestling with parts of myself. Because, you know, um, and this is where, uh, what I found that one of the biggest lessons is, is the bulwark and their, their prayers and this, their thoughts and positive parts of you and family being my immediate family, my brothers and sisters, my nephews and nieces, and even my, my coworkers, you know, who I've came to understand how much they love my, it was my coworkers, right? And lawyers are not the most loving people on the planet, but the fact that people really express real love, that, that was the first lesson. The second lesson was nurses, doctors, and how they really are the angels and really we should be looking at them and what they do and their sacrifice. And then the third lesson that I learned was that I am stronger <laughs> mentally than I could ever dream of being. Now, all of us talk a good game, right? We all do. We all say, especially when we're younger or, or in certain situations or we're observing others, we're like, man, if I was in that situation, you know, I'd be tough. But let's be honest with ourselves. You're never really quite young. There's always a little doubt, right? And I wrestled with that doubt. And I started to understand, and, and this I really understood more after the fact than while I'm going through it, that is that while I was wrestling the beast, when I was also, also wrestling psychologically, psychically, and mentally was with my own self-doubt. That what was fueling this beast of a disease and me beating it was my own self-doubt about myself. And that the, the moment, and, and all it takes, God always leaves like a little path, a little person, a little angel. And for me, it was one of my doctors. So I said I have, five, I have four or five doctors. One of them was sort of on the scarity cat <laughs> part of the range she wouldn't even come in i had this other doctor who was a sort of this classic older doctor who just didn't seem to care <laughs> like he just came up within about half an inch from my face he had a mask on he had a glove and he had this like little little pad and a little pencil that i remember because i remember why are you holding a pencil why are you so close to me he had like no fear and that little man challenged me and it was a very pivotal moment, both medically for me and I think mentally for me. Medically, I had, when you come into the hospital, they hook you up to oxygen. And again, it's all about how much oxygen your body's taking in naturally versus in aided. And in my case, I was hooked up to an oxygen um, tank. It's connected to the hospital, but it's a tank of air with the little two things that go up your nose. And there's several phases of uh, oxygen assistance. That's the first phase. The second phase is what's known as a bag. And the third phase is what we all kind of dread in here is the ventilator, where the machine takes over mm -hmm. all of it. And really, they put you kind of more 
more or less a kind of a coma-like state. And it's really done so that the machine just does all the work for your lungs. When you're, when you're doing that first part with the oxygen tank, well, you're doing some, a lot of work yourself. Even though it's hard, you're just getting assisted. And there are levels that the doctors say that if you reach this level, the, the tank can no longer help you. We have to move on to something stronger, like a bag or ventilator. And in that case, it's, called, it's six liters. Generally speaking, my, my hospital had determined that six liters of oxygen per whatever was the max. That if I needed more than that, I was going to be back. And this doctor came in and said that to me. He said, look, you're not in great shape. Um, we need to get you off this oxygen. And you're going the wrong way. You're going higher. And I need you to bring that down. Otherwise, I'm going to have no choice but to bag you. And if I bag you, you're probably going to have to ventilate you. And if you're going to ventilate who knows when you get out or if you get out. And mm -hmm. he said that just like that. Very good matter of fact. But what he did was I have, and he says, if you want to work hard, that's what he said. He said, if you want to work hard, this is the way you're going to do it. And so he gave me this, what I call a uh, torture device. Um, I think I think the official medical <laughs> term is a spiranum, a spirometer, which is this tube with a kind of a checkers-like thing uh, attached to attached to it that you hold and you breathe, and it it chains your lungs, and it's a very painful process because at that point your lungs are in horrible shape and it's like breathing fire. And he said, if you take this, so I was hearing the medical right which was if you do this and you do this 10 times a day and you do this 10, uh, 10 times, I'm sorry, 10 times an hour, every hour while you're awake. So 120 times or so, we're going to get your lungs to get better and we're going to start decreasing your oxygen. Now that's what he said. This is what I heard. What I heard was if you take this instrument of torture and you pour fire down your throat for like 19 hours a day. Um, and if you don't die while doing that, you'll get better. So, so I'm listening to this like with absolute horror, right? Because what he's saying is in order to get out of here, you need to experience more pain than you're experiencing right now. So if someone tells that to you, you sort of say, what? And, but for me, God knew that's what I needed as an athlete. I needed a goal. I needed a goal line. I need it. I'm a football player. I need to find Absolutely hey, you're on right. the 10 Absolutely yard right. line. You got to get over there to that goal line. So I all, now all of a sudden, four or five days in, now I have a goal line. Now, you know, all, all of you are thinking, but listen, you know, did you speak with your wife? Yes, at that time I was speaking to her and I wanted to get home. And then you want to get home to your kids? Absolutely. And do you know? Well, absolutely. But as a patient, I needed, I needed a vision of how I get out. So, so see the tunnel and then, so, so to me, what I tell people that the biggest philosophical takeaway for me is before you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you have to realize that you're in a tunnel first. That's the first phase. You're in a tunnel and then realize how long the tunnel is. And then you'll realize how to get to the light, right? You got to work backwards. And no one ever tells you that because we always use that phrase. Oh, you'll see the light at the end of the mm. tunnel. So we all focus at the light at the end of the tunnel. But the first thing you have to do is realize you're in a tunnel, which was sort of my first phase. Yeah. And then the second yeah. thing is how long is that tunnel? Because if I tell you a tunnel is two miles versus 20 feet, those are two very different tunnels. 
and two very different experiences to get to the light. And what this person did for me is he gave me the vision to see how long my tunnel was. He gave me the mm. understanding. It's almost like the scales fell off and I said, okay, now I can see the lights over there. I can get there and I, and I now know what I need to do. So that was a very pivotal moment for me and helpful to me because I had doubt. You know, the, the disease was kicking my butt. You know, I was, in, I was a mess. I had my old uh, Tom Hanks beard going. Um, there was no, there was, there was yeah, no Wilson. You look rough. There was some hallucinations, some really, you know, crazy hallucinations. Some may say the demonic, uh, you know, the, 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 the clown from it, the movie. Not, weirdly enough, not the first movie, the second movie, which I still haven't seen. <laughs> but I guess I saw some ad somewhere, um, you know, you know, felt very, very real, was in my room. Didn't talk to me, just was sort of at the end just off the foot of my bed, a presence, a very real human presence. Um, I had some other hallucinations that I was, you know, playing football for Michigan, which is one of my favorite universities, and um, I'm a big football fan. But so, and we won't, we won't, we won't stop right there and say that <laughs> we are Ohio State, you know what I mean? But that is a little rivalry, but that, that we'll so, keep on. So you know, I'll, make you, show I'll make you Ohio State fans happy <laughs> because it was – the, the hallucination, which was very real, was me playing um, for Michigan against Ohio State in a national title game in which I went offsides to lose the game for Michigan, which was sort of a very interesting, you know, I always thought all hallucinations were going to be happy. Like, you know, I was going to win the day. I was going to win the lottery. I was going to win the game. You know, <laughs> not my hallucination. So my hallucination funny. was a big time downer. Now you Ohio State fans may say, oh, it just goodness. reflects reality, Mr. Ortiz. But I'm just saying. Um, anywho. <laughs> it's, it's, exactly. it's your last 20 years coming um, into one hallucination. But, but, so I had struggled mentally, right? I struggled with these hallucinations. I struggled with doubt. I and for me, you know, that was probably feeding kind of how I was mentally approaching. But once I kind of got a lift and look, everybody in their life needs a leg up. And everyone in your life has That's a leg right. up person. You know, um, um, there's a great uh, management consultant um, uh, who works out in the South and he's a good friend of mine. He, uh, he, he has this, this idea kind of in life that we all, you know, life is a team sport. We need other people. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Jordan, you need Scottie Pippen, right? You need somebody else and you need to trust those people and they'll give you a leg up. And so this doctor gave me a leg up and, and helped me. And then from there on, I kind of the next night that I was going to meet the beast, I was better prepared. I felt for the first time that I can, uh, by the way, it's still painful. I was scared, you know, hyperventilated. So, so it wasn't like, again, like a, a Hollywood movie where instantly I beat this disease and I was out in 24 hours. No, I, I was still there another three or four days. But it started the process for me. And it started me to, to first have hope. You know, what's interesting that I think spiritually happened is that, that um, I think my faith and hope in God was stronger than my faith and hope in myself. And I think that the most powerful mm. thing that God showed me, and really I'm kind of realizing at this moment, is 
that I had to have faith and hope in myself too. That at the end of the day, um, that's what I needed. I needed to have faith in myself too, and that I can do this. And I was lacking mm -hmm. that. I was, you know, for all the right reasons, right? Scared and, you know, um, the, the disease was consuming me. And I say that um, not as a metaphor. Um, you know, I, I lost 26 pounds in eight days. Um, literally, which means I was losing, right, two or three pounds, and it's very hard to do that um, every single day. No matter how much nourishment they were giving me, I was still negative, you know, several thousand calories because that's what this disease was doing to my body. Um, and, and having that little spark changed my mentality and being able to kind of grip and say, get a hold of yourself, Angel. Um, you know, God wants to see me. He's going to be there. The, the, I can see the footprints, but I, but in this scenario, right. Of the footprints, you know, of the famous footprints, uh, poem, um, I got to walk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I wasn't yeah. walking. And so, um, you know, he was going to be there, but just like any good coach or good trainer, I had to do the work. And oftentimes I think what we do, do somewhere, especially when you believe in, 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 in the Lord and you believe in, in how benevolent he can be in the, the powerful things. I think sometimes we, we become just overly dependent on, he's just going to do it. I don't have to do a thing. And we try to put him on automatic, like autopilot, <laughs> like, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. And no, no, absolutely right. Understanding that we have to do for ourselves as well. And well, think about it this way. Go ahead, go ahead, because you're stirring me up. I, I don't want to talk about partnership for a second, because even in the Godhead, mm -hmm. there's a partnership, right? You have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we believe in a triune God, that all three of them working together makes him right. God. You know what I mean? And so even in with that, within itself, God within himself shows you, I'm in partnership with myself. You know what I mean? And I'm not only in partnership with myself, I'm in partnership right. I'm in partnership with you and you're in partnership within yourself, right? We, we, have, we made up three parts, spirit, soul, and body. All those holistically growing, right? Make us great and holistic, productive people. If one of those are lacking, then we're lacking because we're not in partnership with our own self. And so I just wanted to stop there for a second. And it's just, there's, there's something powerful to understand that I'm in partnership with God. Uh, I'm not, God is not uh, going to do everything and this, and he's not expecting me to do everything, but there is a partnership. I, I, I've heard it best from a rabbi friend of mine. He says, God says, do 1% and he does 99, right. but at right. least you have to do the one. You know what I mean? And a lot of people don't even want to do the one, right? They just, God is a hundred percent on you. God's like, no, right. do what I'm asking you to right. do. Right. And do I the got work. you do the work. And, and, and like, so and, and as you talked about, do the work, I had to first align my spiritual and mental self before I can then take those two parts and turn to try to help heal myself as well. And I'll say that, right? Um, I, I think there was self-healing and there was divine healing. And there were two parts of the healing. I agree and with that. I needed to self-heal. I needed to be able to um, ex exert the will that on the sixth day when I was hyperventilating at night, 1130 in a lonely room, 
still suffering from some hallucinations that I don't even remember, but I kind of was this disassociative state. And that was, again, that was natural uh, uh, progression from the medicine that was being given. And, and, but I was able to hold myself together for the first time five, six days in and say, okay, hey, wait, you can do this. You can stop hyperventilating for two hours. Now try to think about what was happening to me. Try to think about the last time you're ever hyperventilating, ever hyperventilated, and think about that over a stretch of hours and how exhausting that is. So you're hyperventilating for hours. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, there came a point where I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I really literally remember whole, like almost stepping out of myself and saying, get a hold of yourself, Ortiz. You can do this. Let's slow down our breathing. And that's what happened. And then I... So you was in the hospital, Angel. Sorry, let me cut you off. You, you was in the hospital come out eight days yeah, or yeah. nine. So, so if you look at it this way, six days. Uh, and I love numerology. I love the Hebrew language, and everybody knows eight that. Eight days. That was seven nights, eight the days. The Holy Post. Yeah. Uh, you know. So, so think about it. So six days. Six is is the the number of flesh, right? So in those six days, you were wrestling to get that rest. Seventh is the number of perfection, which is the number of rest. And then eight is the number of new beginnings. So it, it, I don't know if you saw it through that pattern. I, I, I struggled six days with my flesh. The seventh day I came into my rest and the eighth day I was able to walk into new beginnings. This takes yeah. a totally biblical point of view. You know what I mean? Uh, in your journey, because I love what you say. And, and I, I want, for those who are listening some journeys are not meant to be end, not end to end. I think a lot of people are looking for destinations and not journeys. And some journeys are meant to go on. And our journey with our relationship with ourselves and God is that it's not a destination. I think people get that confused. They want a trophy. They want something to win, right? And a lot of times this, this journey that we have with God, where we're learning so much about ourselves and him, is not a journey that ends in this life. Right? It right. continues right. into the eternal life, right? And so, and, that's, and so we have to look at it that way. I, I want to bring it, everything, Andrew, kind of to a close now. I am going to give these five lessons that I think I took out of what you were saying. So the first lesson, the love, the love of family and friends. The second lesson, heroes, doctors and nurses. Uh, three, hope. I'm stronger than I think that I am, right? So, so those I think folks need to really hit, listen to. That. Number four, vision, seeing that end of the rope, seeing that line that I needed uh, and finding your leg up right. person is what I took number as number five. Um, and so, Andrew, as we come into a close and as we put in all these thoughts together, um, what's the last thought that you want to leave our audience with? Not only with your journey, but even things to come as you see in your future coming. Um, I like to say if, if, it was, if you had only one thing and one thought to leave to the earth, uh, what would that be, right? And so what thought pattern do you want to leave? Those who listen to your journey, those who listen to your story, um, what thought pattern do you want yeah, to that leave? I'm, I'm still striving to be my best self. And, and that my, uh, I'm not in a new beginning for say, other than it's the second half. I was paused. I didn't end. So my journey was paused and it resumed and, and that great pause that we are all in right now is a time for self-reflection and saying, yeah. I'm acutely aware that I fall short, I'm not just the glory of God, short of my 
my my best self and that I need to strive to be a better person. I need to strive to be a better father, a better husband, a better brother, a better son. And that is what I'm striving to continue, that that we are all on journeys and that sometimes it's not so much as you get a second chance at reliving your life. You get a second chance at focusing on what the true goal is, which is trying to be your best self. I love that. And I believe that prophetically, I mean, we have a podcast on our way called Pause and Reset because I just believe this whole thing was a pause and a reset because, you know, people do think, oh, it's a pause, but they forget that other leg. In pausing, Mm -hmm. there has to be a reset and you have to be able to reset yourself and be able to reset everything about, right? And be able to uncover, right? And and discover things about yourself that you probably didn't want to uncover and discover. You know what I mean? And I think that that's the part that we don't like a lot of times. You know what I mean? Because some of it is 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 can we stand the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because all of us have the good, the bad, and the ugly within ourselves, right? And so it's being able to pause and reset. But as we reset, asking the Holy Spirit, what is it, the things that you want me to reset? What are the things in me that you want me to address? I don't, you know, I think a lot of people look always out, right? Oh, I want to fix this person. I want to fix the president. I want to fix, uh, you know, the, my local government. I want to fix the way cops do things. I want to fix. And a lot of times it's right. like, no, I, I want to fix me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean, I'm going to draw a circle around me and I'm going to fix me. And, and, and that's the key. You know what I mean? So, uh, Angel, it's been a pleasure Thank to you. have you uh, on, our, on our podcast. I'm going to have you again. Um, an amazing time. You know, again, for those who are listening, Angel's now recovered, which is powerful. And I want your story to bless many people. Uh, we're going to put your story out on, on media and everywhere so that everyone can listen to it and everyone can learn and grow. And hopefully uh, you said something powerful. Hope is a medicine. And so your story is hope for those who think they're going to get COVID, for those who have it or those who are coming out of it. You know, know that there is hope. You know what I mean? Everybody has their own personal journey. I won't get into the 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 idiosyncrasies of you know why God chooses some and some not. Those that's between God and and and, and those are God questions and God answers that I, I I'm not I'm not uh, I can't even answer uh, even go there. You know what I mean? But knowing your story that God brought you out um, and He did it for a reason. No, and, and, and look, it's and been thank my pleasure. And, and I'll sign off by saying to thank that great wife of yours for her service and. Uh, and uh, hug my nieces for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And so if you want to get more questions out to Angel or anything like that, please reach us at two websites, Daniel at the wavecolumbus.com, Daniel at the wavecolumbus.com. Or if you're listening to the Holy Talk uh, podcast, Holy Talk podcast at gmail.com. And Be we blessed, thank you. everyone. Angel, I'm Take signing care. off and we'll talk soon, buddy. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Holy Talk. Email holytalkpodcast at gmail.com for more information.